by Design is sponsored by the Red Team at Coldwell Banker Residential Brokerage and McChesney Design Studio. everything you want in life. Passion by Design is a show about designing and living a life of passion, purpose, and possibility. I'm Paula McChesney. And I'm Sandy Peckinpah. We're with you live every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. to discuss living life fully through the senses here on Radio Monterey, KRXA, AM 540, and streaming live on the internet at radiomonterey.com. Hi, Paula. Hi, Sandy. We are going to have a great show this afternoon. We're doing the second in our series that we are calling Lightening Up in Your Home, Your Business, and Your Head. And today we are focusing on your business. Last week we talked about some tips and tricks about how to lighten things up in your home. And a lot of us uh, work in businesses, either our own businesses or have home offices or even work in a, in a public office or a, an office with other people. And one of the things, Sandy, that I know everyone says is that we are all overwhelmed by emails. We're on information <laughs> overload. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I know that I personally get over 100 a day, and I'm sure I'm mm-hmm. not alone in that. Um, and you, Sandy, have created a very efficient, time-honored, proven system for handling your emails, and I would like to have you share that with our listening audience. Well, I equate that massive amount of email to what I used to get in catalogs a couple years ago. Every Christmas, I think the maximum number that I counted one year in one day was 52 catalogs, and it was at Christmas time. And I was thinking, oh, "Oh, those poor trees. But um, now I just get maybe a couple of catalogs a week. But in my email, I probably get about, I I think I average about 180 emails a day. Oh, my. So I had to come up with a system, Paula, because I was on overwhelm. I tried everything to organize my emails. I started by trying to delete everything. Well, when you go through 180 emails and try to delete them, that's a good 20 to 30 minutes of your time. So what do you do with that? Well, I think I've come up with a pretty good system, and I'm really anxious to share it with people because it's been working great for me. And what I did was, first of all, I'd like to impress upon you the value of an email program such as Outlook, Microsoft's Outlook, or the Macintosh mail program, something like that, because email programs give you the options to start organizing your emails. And I'm going to speak mostly from the Mac because I'm a Mac girl. (laughs) I've been, uh, I have everything, the iPad, the iPhone, everything. And actually, I always have been. I learned how to work on computers uh, on an iMac years ago. And I'll never forget the first one I worked on. I thought, I am never going to learn this, 
I spent about three hours trying to figure out what a computer was all about, and I packed it up, and I took it back to the store, and I said, I'm, I'm never going to figure this out. Well, lo and behold, the, the Apple people were very kind and sat down with me and started teaching me step-by-step uh, step how to use a computer. And today, I think a, a huge portion of the population are pretty savvy. At least they know how to sign on to emails and get emails. And um, now let's talk about what do we do with these emails. So what I developed is a system where uh, you can develop uh, folders for your emails. So if you make a folder, and that's usually under, oh gosh, something like... Um, mailboxes in the uh, program that is uh, on Mac. It's under mailboxes. And if you create different folders, and what I've done is I create a business folder, I create a bank receipts folder, I create a program folder for my writing, I create a folder for my real estate business, and of course for Passion by Design. I have a lot of other folders too, like for taxes. And if I have a specific person that I email a lot and I need to save their emails, like you, Paula, I have a Paula McKesney folder. Yes, and indeed. And so what I do is when I go through these emails, I quickly move the email into the folder that it needs to be. And I can always address it later. I found that it's a huge waste of time to try to delete all of the emails that are junk mail. And so what I do at the end of every year, I create another folder and I name it by the year. So I took my 2013 folder and if you highlight the beginning of 2013 by clicking on it, the beginning of 2013 and go all the way to the end of 2013, hold your shift key down and highlight the last one. You can drag it all the way over to that folder, and voila, all of your emails are in that folder. So if you ever have to reference 2013, it's right there. How about that? That is great, Sandy. That is such a good idea. You are the queen of that. <laughs> well, I know that at the end of the year, say, for instance, my taxes, all I had to do was open up my tax email folder, and there was everything that I needed. I had uh, W-2s that had been emailed to me, everything. It just works out so well, especially for business receipts, because now a lot of uh, companies, I know even Lowe's, Home Depot, Office Depot, anytime I go to those businesses, they email me a receipt. And so rather than print it out and waste paper, I just put it into the business receipts file and I always have it. So Sandy, you do that as soon as you get that email coming in? Yes. Okay. Okay. So yes. what if what if you um, are, if they don't send you a receipt like that, then you just don't even try to worry about it in an email situation, correct? No, if they don't send you an e uh, receipt, then you, they, you probably have a paper receipt, and I have file folders for that. Okay, which is going to lead us to our... Do you have any more, Sandy, on how to handle emails? Uh, yes, I do. One more, I think, really important thing is I have email addresses for different things. 
For instance, I have an email address where I have, whenever I do online shopping and I sign up for online shopping, you know the massive amounts of email that you get for, um, you know, if you buy something on Victoria's Secret or something like that or Nordstrom. So what I do is I have one email account because email accounts are free on Gmail. So you can create email accounts or Yahoo. And um, every time I sign up, I use that e specific email address so that all of my stuff from shopping goes into one email address so I don't have to worry that it crowds up my business email and my personal email. The other one that I do, Paula, is that if I have a, I have one where I like to sign up for different uh, things that I, people that I find interesting. You know, if I have take seminars or online seminars, I have one email address for that too. Oh, that's a good and idea. So, yeah, so that way you know. All right, so my I call it my spiritual email, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I use. I whenever I sign up for those, I give them my spiritual email address, and that way I know. Uh, exactly where those emails are coming from and and what they are. That is, those are great, great tips, Sandy. They really, I know they're effective because I know how organized you are. So I know they work. <laughs> well, you talked about paper receipts and and things that you don't get in email format, and that takes us to um, what we're calling our passion point number two. That was passion point number one that Sandy shared about organizing your office uh, on on the computer on emails, and the second point is what do we do with all that paper that comes in? And I got this tip from a very amazing, powerful, beloved um, CPA here in Monterey, California, named Leslie Brun. And Leslie leads women in wealth workshops and just is a truly, I would say, enlightened tax person and I give a great uh, great shout out to her because I I think she's very unique in that and she's wonderful this, we interviewed her on the show she was she was one of our guests mm -hmm. yeah really we we need to get her back but she's very busy right now but she mm -hmm. said the simplest bookkeeping system in the world and it is called a box and <laughs> I started to laugh when I heard that. I thought, did I really hear that right? And and the way it works is this. If you put everything in one place, you know where it is. Now, that sounds terribly simplistic, but it actually is very efficient. And I'll describe how I use Leslie's system. And because I'm a designer, I have to have everything look pretty. Um, so... I, my banker's box, um, and those are the big uh, boxes that you get at Staples or an office supply, Office Depot, one of those. Uh, don't try it with a shoebox because you'll just get frustrated. That's too mm -hmm. small. But, of course, mine is covered with pretty paper, and you can do fabric or paper and a um, spray bottle of glue, and you've got, you've got it looking terrific very shortly. And the other piece of this very sophisticated organizing system is to have 12 colored pieces of paper, one for each month of the year. And as you can probably surmise, you write the name of the month on each colored piece of paper. So how this works is when things come in 
first of all, you throw away the junk mail, and preferably mm-hmm. if you can do it into a recycle. Um, in Carmel here, we've got, and I think most post offices have this, we have big recycle bins. So you can stand there so it and throw those things out before it even gets through your door, which really helps a tremendous amount. And then secondly, you take out any bills that need to be paid or any time-sensitive material. And I advise you to put a little folder in that box that says bills to be paid. And we're going to talk about that as our third point. Um, But when you've got this box and the month passes, you put the next month colored paper on it, you know exactly where everything is. And it may take you a few minutes if you don't remember exactly the month, but I promise you it's a lot faster than if you have got, like I used to do, and I, true confessions here, I occasionally am still guilty of, of having some different piles around because I think I'm getting more organized. So that's really passion point number two. Mm, Great idea. So our third well, point has to do with bill pay. So let's go on, on to that. Unless, Sandy, you have more to add on on the second point. No, but one thing that I love to make um, things like that fun is I love your idea of colored paper, and I also love colored file folders. Mm-hmm. Those make me so happy. <laughs> I know. There's a, lot, there's a lot of joy and energy in color, and it's more, more than just a pretty thing, it's an energetic thing, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, mm-hmm. um, right. too, in this this bill pay. And passion point number three is about handling bills, and we all get them, and I think that most of us probably have a bit of, I will say, a bad attitude about paying bills, and here's here's what we want to present to you, our listening audience. A bill is really a service that has already been provided to you on the promise, on your word, on your honor, that you will pay it. So someone, whether it's a person or a company or a corporation, and corporations are nothing but a lot of people working together, they have trusted you that you will honor your word and pay for the service that they have probably already provided you. It may be the water that comes through your tap that that you can drink and keep you alive. It may be the heat that keeps you warm. It may be the phone that keeps you in communication. Any of those things. So what we recommend doing, and this is where the shift might be for some people, you may not have ever thought of this, We recommend that you change how you approach paying bills and gather them together, sit down, get comfortable, brew yourself a nice cup of tea or a glass of wine, whatever your your preference is, light a candle, get your colored pens, whatever you like, have them handy, and write out those checks with an awareness of gratitude, an attitude Mm. that you are grateful that that service has been provided to you and you in turn are keeping up your end of the deal. And that increases... I like it. Yeah, it increases your energy. It makes you feel good about yourself. And it will also increase your money flow. And another thing that we really feel strongly about and recommend is that in addition to paying your basic bills 
if you can make a contribution, no matter how small it is, to an organization that you care about, it can be, um, I am a big public broadcast service, PBS um, appreciator and user, um, SPCA, they do amazing things for the animals on our planet, you will gain in abundance. And the simple mm -hmm. shift in how you organize, how you pay your bills, will pay off big time in many ways. Wonderful. Well, you know, I started doing that, too, um, when I realized that when my bills come to me, and they are on the kitchen counter. It's just a complete aggravation. So I immediately go through them, throw away what I don't need, and head to my office and put them in a, a hanging file box on my wall that has a slot for bills. And then I know that they're there, and I choose the time that I'm going to pay them. So it works out really well. Right, and then they're not bugging you and taking up mm -hmm. your emotional energy, your your what I call free rent in your head, when you see mm -hmm. them sitting there nagging at you like this little voice saying, you should be paying me. Anyway, mm -hmm. Sandy, that's, that's also a great tip. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Passion by Design here on Radio Monterey, KRXA AM 540, and streaming live on the Internet at RadioMonterey.com. Stay with us. We'll be right back. McChesney Design Studio is a full-service interior design firm specializing in interiors for your home or business that reflect your unique message and personal style. We are located in beautiful downtown Carmel across from the post office. Call today for a complimentary consultation, 831-333-6261, or visit us on the web at mcchesneydesignstudio.com. Proud to be a sponsor of Passion by Design. Join me, Paula McChesney, and my co-host, Sandy Peckinpah, Sunday afternoon at 5 for our show, Passion by Design, Designing a Life of Passion, Purpose, and Possibility. We'll be discussing your home, your health, your relationships, and anything else that you want to talk about. Be sure to tune in this Sunday at 5 right here on AM540 or at RadioMonterey.com, and visit us anytime on the web at PassionByDesign.com. Every two seconds, someone in America needs blood. You can help by donating blood through your local American Red Cross. Giving blood is easy, and it only takes about an hour. A single donation can also help save more than one life. Give blood to help someone in immediate need. It could be a friend, a neighbor, or a stranger. Make an appointment to donate blood by calling 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcrossblood.org today. Be a hero to someone in need and help change a life, starting with your own. Wouldn't it be great to buy the right home at the right price and feel your real estate agent had the same vision for your dream? Sandy Peckinpah and Kim Driussi of The Red Team at Coldwell Banker Residential Brokerage have been making their clients' dreams come true, and they can do that for you. Coldwell Banker is worldwide and can help you with your next transaction no matter where you are. So dream on and call Sandy today at 951-304-2900. And the Red Team is a proud sponsor of Passion by Design. 
Welcome back to Passion by Design. I'm Paula McChesney here on KRXA Radio Monterey. And I'm your co-host, Sandy Peckinpah. I have the pleasure of introducing a very special guest today. Perry Gorfinkel is a journalist, author, speaker, and writing instructor. He's a longtime contributor to the New York Times since 1986, in fact. He's written numerous books, including a national bestseller in the literary genre of spiritual adventure travel memoir. His book is titled Buddha or Bust, and it was chosen as the best Buddhist writing of 2006. He's also reported on psychology, travel, health, and spirituality trends for over four decades, and he's written scripts for the Travel Channel and News Travel Network. Perry travels all over the world making appearances and giving workshops to hotel spa guests and hospitality and wellness professionals entitled, entitled Buddha's Massage, the ultimate pampering of the mind. And my favorite thing about Perry is that he has admittedly been falling off and on the meditation cushion for three years back, three decades, I should say now. So welcome, Perry. Thank you very much for that introduction. Sandy and Paula, nice to meet you both. Well, we're delighted oh, that you. you're with us. Thank you. Sandy, so this should begin in the in the journeys of, you know, uh, relationships by saying that your husband went to high school with me and we reconnected in Tucson not uh, just a couple of months ago. So Sandy and I have forged a, a brand new friendship and I, and I look forward to it blossoming and growing. Oh, thank you. Yes, my wonderful husband, Jim, we met you at um, Miraval Resort and Spa and you were doing such an incredible interview of a masseuse there, and I'd love to talk about that a, a little bit later on in our conversation. Sure. Yeah. Perry, I wanted to hear some of your background. It is fascinating, it's diverse, it's colorful, and a key question I have, too, is at what point and how did you discover that your passion for writing could lead you to a lifelong career? Uh, there were kind of um, stages, I could say, uh, Paula. Uh, when I was very young, people always said I had a flair for writing, but I didn't really think of this, you know, as like this is my future, like these, you know, young kids who decide I'm going to be a doctor at the age of five. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, my first job actually was working for a newspaper. And I always thought of it as something I was going to do until I figured out what I was going to do <laughs> when I grew up, so to speak. And right. it, really it took me most of my 20s to kind of, you know, struggle with and against uh, this desire, you know, to, which really comes from the, my need to communicate. I, I know I wrote an entrance, uh, you know, one of those college um, application essays, and it was all about the idea that why did I want to write? Why did I want a career in journalism at that point? Um, it was because I felt I wanted to communicate something from me to others. And over the years, it's been reconfirmed that my, my basic understanding of the human nature is that we all suffer in, in certain similar ways. 
We all share gratitude in some similar ways. Race, color, creed, generation, demographics. Uh, there are these common human emotional experiences that we all have. And, and I somehow got the gift early that I was one of those people who was, you know, uh, the emperor's new suit. I, I would t talk about my vulnerabilities and, and, you know, failures and flaws. And I found it to be personally, you know, revelatory, and, and it opened spigots for other people. And this was a skill I really used as a journalist because one of the, you know, key qualities be well long before writing is uh, getting people to talk to you, you know, learning how to communicate and, uh, you know, being open and, and having a listening uh, skill because yes. m most conversations seem to be one way, you know, people I know in my first book I did research about the difference between the way men and women communicate. <laughs> and one little tidbit from that, and then, then we can circle back, is that um, men seem to say but more frequently in conversation. In other words, they're kind of argumentative, where women are additive. They say and, and I, and oh, yeah, I oh. understand, and I. So, so, you know, along the way, probably when I was about 30, I finally accepted that this is what I do, and I'm good at it, and it took me, you know, a, a, that was when I really began to hone the skill of a writer, and, and own, hone and own, <laughs> uh, you know, the identity as a writer. Interesting. Mm. You know, Perry, um, I'm reading your book now, and I'm several chapters in, and the first thing that really struck me was your ability not only to weave words so beautifully on the page, and I really have to compliment you on that as a writer myself. I love how you structure your, your, um, your thoughts, and you leave your vulnerability on that page, and it instantly connects the reader to your thoughts and what you're feeling. And some of the things that you talk about, like things that, that your mother said to you, and I think how courageous that is to put that on the page for the world to see. And um, I just was struck by the openness and the ability that you have to really connect with what you're thinking. How much did the Buddhist practice that you embraced several years ago contribute to that? Uh, you know, I want to answer this in two parts, Ben, and I think they will interrelate. And it's interesting, you know, us writers and, the, and who isn't a closet writer, you know. The craft uh, was interesting because I've been, you know, I'd written some books, but mainly I do stories for the New York Times and uh, I've written for National Geographic, and you have a a word limit and and you also have a kind of box you have to fit into you know for the medium whether it's you know the rigor mm -hmm. of the new york times or uh you know the kind of color and the voice that you use for national geographic and you have a finite number of words and an editor editor well when i started writing the book you're talking about buddha or bust um i realized wow the sky's the limit. You know, there's no word count I have to pay attention to. It's just me and me, me and me and you. And, and, I, and when I write, I kind of think of my audience as another person sitting across from me uh, who already gets me and who I already get. So the, the connection is there, and I think that feeds into 
you know, the part where I do feel comfortable, you know, uh, exposing, you know, either my dark side, my, my insecure side, my, my long nose, you know, any of the foibles that I have because of what I said before, that I do know that we all, you know, share these things and there's nothing unique about my suffering. And of course, Sandy, as you know, Paula, the suffering part sort of circles to, you know, what I learned, you know, over the 30 years of, of practicing and you know, leaving and coming back to Buddhism all the time, which is that, you know, one of the universal truths that the Buddha espoused was that, you know, no matter, you know, where you are, who you are, what you do, how much money you have, you will suffer in, at some point in your life. And the suffering isn't, uh, you know, necessarily depression. It's not, uh, you know, pain, physical pain. It's all of that. It's, it's the, you know, it's, it's the hope of getting the job that you don't get, and then you get depressed, losing the love of your life. Um, you know, as Sandy, you certainly know about loss and grief, and, and uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the attachment to hoping things will turn out the way you want them to that ultimately can lead to some suffering. And so in my writing, I kind of over the years, uh, having done the rigorous thing where I write in the third person, you know, the, the very journalistic approach, I felt like, a, like a, a plug had been opened, a faucet had been opened, and I was writing beautifully. And, I, and I'm very critical of my writing, but I, the first chapter I wrote, Sandy, was um, the chapter about going to meet and interview the Dalai Lama in India. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, there's there's always that thing about two kinds of people, those who eat the cherry, you know, in the beginning, and those who save the cherry for the end. And I'm usually the cherry at the end guy. But in this case, for that book, and the, the arduous journey I was about to undertake as the writer, uh, and, and I'll, you know, we can talk a little about what the book was about, but um, I decided uh, I'm going to give myself uh, a treat, and almost like uh, that, that, that um, cherry became a carrot. And I knew that the, the best chapter, my, the most profound experience I had of the interviews I did uh, probably was with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So I decided I'm going to reward myself at the beginning of this very you know, difficult journey. And, and, and it turned out to be a chapter that was n- n- named uh, the best Buddhist writing, you know, the awards I've won, and that, that chapter mm-hmm. has been excerpted in many places. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I kind of went off your question, but it's uh, it certainly, you know, we all revolves around. At this point, it's very, as you can tell, I sort of my, it's seamless. You know, where does the Buddhism leave off and the writer begin? It's all sort of interconnected to me now. Perry, what what does it mean to you? And I I love the the quote, and and I I find it endearing and charming. But falling off off the meditation, you know, off and on the meditation cushion for three decades, what does that really mean to you? Very good question. Um, there is an expression from which I you know adapted that little line, which is this is an old Zen saying fall off of the cushion nine times, get on it ten. Uh. And that's the life lesson, isn't it? And, you know, you guys have a wonderful show about passion and passion by design, and, and yet sometimes passion, you know, in the Joseph Campbell way, you know, kind of just glongs onto you, you know, but no design. It just sort of falls, you know, in, envelops you. But the uh, the practice of buddhism is is not that easy as and as writing is very difficult 
And and the the life lesson, the metaphor is don't give up. Or as yes. they say in Spanish, si se puede. <laughs> yes, you can. If you fall off the horse, you get back on it. And that's exactly what it means in terms of my own practice. I've uh, let me last thing I'd say is uh, you know, once the veil has been lifted, you know, and and you guys know what I mean, but there's, that's a metaphorical veil. It's it's a you know the experience of having seen that what we perceive as as this life isn't all there is, and also the veil of the kind of ignorance of your own um, you know setbacks and your own obstacles, your your own self doubt. Once you see through to the other side, you can't shut that veil completely. So even when I'm not meditating. You know, I have the consciousness that, well, there's meditation out there, and it's around me, and others in, you know, the monasteries in the Himalayas are meditating. Just the awareness that that practice has some value, has value to me. And, and in, the, in my, uh, you know, when I'm in the desert of practice, in other words, you know, I'm not practicing, uh, sometimes it just takes uh, that is enough to tide me over until I you know, crawl my way back to a meditation cushion. <laughs> Get on the horse you know, and ride it again. <laughs> that's a very true statement. Once the veil has been lifted, you can never go back and and have it be the way it was. It mm-hmm. it's as though you're transformed like a butterfly, I guess that's why they use that's why they use that uh analogy so often. But um one of the things that I found really interesting in your book, and I think it's um, in Chapter 2, when you you decided to do this book and you got the assignment and you started to plan for the trip and, and create the expedition, and you say in Chapter 2, I, I'm starting at a stack of the best biographies of the Buddha when I suddenly realized this expedition is impossible. What was that like? Did you say, oh, my gosh, now I have to do this? (laughs) What were your thoughts uh, on that? Well, my thoughts were that, uh, you know, every creative project I, I have found, and so many creative people say this, too, that you at some point you have, uh, and you guys should weigh in, you have this vision. It sort of comes to you like almost spontaneously combusted in full form. Yes, uh, that's it. Uh, the, the beginning of the film adaptation where Nicolas Cage sees like the whole arc of a story from the dinosaur age up to yesterday. These, uh, you know, the brilliance comes in a flash. And then you have to do the pedestrian work of piece by piece by piece and logic sequence, logic sequence, yes. logic sequence, and tell a story well. And I think that was the part that overwhelmed me. Okay, I have the vision. Other people had, you know, bought into my vision. But then the, you know, the work, the work. You know, there's the the inspiration and, you know, that old saying, what, about, what is it about perspiration and mm-hmm. inspiration? <laughs> 90 percent, 10 percent, yes. So, you know, <laughs> I, and I my father's, you know, messages to me, ring in my ear and when i was a kid i uh, the rap on me was i i didn't finish things perry probably had add and i was you know multitasking at the age of four 
and I had a little focus <laughs> issue, I can admit. Uh, some of you, one of you guys had some true confessions earlier. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the focus problem. And I think that those were the, you know, I can't do it. No, no puedo. I can't do it. But, um, you know, but you overcome that. You get back on the cushion again. It's exactly the same sort of story. Mm, that's Perry. Well, I, I should say, uh, let me just say, uh, uh, friends, uh, this book we're talking about was a, a, a journey around the world, which began for National Geographic magazine, and it appeared in the uh, December 2005 or six. It's five edition. It was the cover story of 24 international editions, and what I did was set out to travel around the world. Uh, literally in the footsteps of the Buddha first, and then in the footsteps of Buddhism, and show its uh, migration from its you know origins in India, south to Sri Lanka, and continuing east around the world. And actually, my journey ended, you could say, in um, Boulder, Colorado, at Naropa, uh, Naropa University. But the angle was there's a new movement in Buddhism called socially engaged Buddhism. Terry, can we talk about that? Because I want to hear about socially engaged Buddhism. That is fascinating. When we come back from break, and I would like to have you tell our listening audience your website. I know there are people out there wanting to go online right now and and look you up. Please share that. Okay. Now or later? Just right now, because I'm going to let you do it again later. (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, my website is... HarryGarfinkel.com. P is in Peter, E-R-R-Y, Garfinkel, G-A-R-F-I-N-K-E-L. And all my books are there. I've written about three books and co-authored four and most of my New York Times stories. And the story I wrote for National Geographic that we're talking about is on that on the, on, on that website, too. Excellent. Well, I'm going to let you uh, hold that thought, and we're going to go to a short break. We are on KRXA Radio Monterey, and you're listening to Passion by Design. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Perry Garfinkel. Okay. be great to buy the right home at the right price and feel your real estate agent had the same vision for your dream? Sandy Peckinpah and Kim Driussi of the Red Team at Coldwell Banker Residential Brokerage have been making their clients' dreams come true, and they can do that for you. Coldwell Banker is worldwide and can help you with your next transaction no matter where you are. So dream on and call Sandy today at 951-304-2900. And the red team is a proud sponsor of Passion by Design. The Discerning Knows. I'm Bob Hershon, and this is Science Update. Our sense of smell isn't nearly as sensitive as that of dogs, but according to Rockefeller University researcher Andreas Keller, we don't give our noses enough credit. He wanted to find out how many different odors the human nose can tell apart, so he gave volunteers a series of sniff tests in which they were asked to distinguish between two different odors. And we found that if you have two mixtures and more than 50% of the components are different, people usually can discriminate them. 
And then we did math to calculate how many mixtures are there that all differ from one another by 50% or more, and that number is one trillion. That might sound astronomically high, but Keller says we only encounter a small fraction of these in daily life. He adds that being able to tell whether food has spoiled by discriminating odors played a key role in human evolution. I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. McChesney Design Studio is a full-service interior design firm specializing in interiors for your home or business that reflect your unique message and personal style. We are located in beautiful downtown Carmel across from the post office. Call today for a complimentary consultation, 831-333-6261, or visit us on the web at mcchesneydesignstudio.com. Proud to be a sponsor of Passion by Design. Welcome back. In case you're just joining us, you are listening to Passion by Design on KRXA AM 540 and streaming live on the Internet at RadioMonterey.com. And we've been talking with Perry Garfinkel, a writer who has many facets of notable work. And he was leaving us with the thought that we're going to continue on a discussion of socially engaged Buddhism. Perry, continue with that conversation. What is socially engaged Buddhism? Socially engaged uh, Buddhism is a phrase coined by the, the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who oh. has millions of uh, followers around the world. and. Uh, a great, a great man who I also had the privilege to interview in uh, the south of France. Uh, it's really, it's really quite simple. It's the application of uh, some of the basic Buddhist principles to social, you know, what we in the West might call social services. Uh, so around the world, in Thailand, there's an HIV. There are HIV clinics. Based on the basic Buddhist principles, which are, I could say in two words, are uh, compassion and awareness. Uh, there's a Zen hospice in San Francisco that I actually volunteered at for a while and wrote about, and uh, that actually was the beginning of my book and, and the National Geographic story. Uh, it turns out that there's a network and a very um, intricately intertwined network of people doing good works you know, as the Christians might say in the Christian tradition, um, that are based uh, on the, uh, you know, on these formative values of Buddhism. So there's um, senior communities, there's educational thrust, there are um, teachers, uh, some of the the Vipassana tradition of meditation is applied to, uh, there were uh, police in Minneapolis who were trained to uh, you know, overcome their anger or, you know, con- maintain control in stressful situations by learning the simple Buddhist practice of, of what we call vipassana. Uh, uh, these are, this is social engagement, you know, not just monks in monasteries and caves in the, you know, the remote hills of the Himalayas. It's, it's mm. Buddhism in your living room, Buddhism in your therapy session, you know, Buddhism in your family. And this is not the Buddhism of saffron robes and bald-headed monks. This is a more, um, you know, non-denominational application of the basic principles that, you know, drove the Buddha and that, you know, are the basis of Buddhist practices around the world in, in every iteration. 
In the yeah. U.S., of course, we're, let me just say, in the U.S., we have many, many examples and many places where you can plug in and, and participate and not have to shave your head and, you know, not have to give up your worldly possessions uh, and, and use the tools that, you know, were provided a couple thousand years ago. It was, it was a lovely assignment and a great gift for me to be able to show others, you know, how to use some of these basic tools. I can imagine that was has, was amazing, and it raises a question in my mind, and perhaps uh, some of our listeners as well. I think, personally, that there is a very large, very powerful groundswell of spiritual awareness happening across the globe, and it's not, in my opinion, only in Buddhism. I think it's in many different aspects of spirituality. And I don't know, I guess my first question to you would be, do you, what do you think about that? And any comment on that and how that relates to Buddhism, if, if you think that is indeed um, something that is going on? Well, I, yes, I do. And in fact, Paula, I, there was um, a story I'll be writing, um, a, a profile, a Q&A, actually, that I'll be doing for the New York Times with a, with a gentleman at Stanford who is... Uh, head of a program called Spiritual Care. He's a physician who's now a chaplain, a lay chaplain, and he's doing what we used, what I, you know, heard of as pastoral counseling, which is your, you know, spiritual community leader, helping people through divorce, you know, um, a loss, death in a family, uh, you know, physical disabilities, and you know, when we sometimes hit a wall and when our when our faith isn't enough and, and uh, you know, bad things <laughs> befall us, that, was the, that used to be the, the, that was the, phrase, the, the term that was used in the past, pastoral counseling. Now, I think in, in response to your question, we have crossed uh, the Rubicon of, mm -hmm. of the taboo of using the word spiritual. Mm -hmm. And now it's called spiritual care, which is much closer to the heart and, and soul of, of what it is. So that's another example of just corroborating that I do see the 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 you know the the tab the use of the word spiritual is is used throughout. I I notice on the other hand, more people lately will say they're spiritual than religious. Have you noticed that? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a sort of um, it's a good thing. I think we're kind of taking religion out of the of the institutions in, in which maybe they have become encrusted and, and seeing things on a much more, uh, I, I want to say a global plane, but I really mean something more like that, more than like a cosmic plane. In my opinion, um, religion can offer a nice framework for uh, people to p practice their spirituality if that's how they choose to practice. And for me, the word spiritual can embrace um, a broader scope. And so both can be integrated or not. That's how I sort um, of look at it. Yeah, I, I do think... Um people who describe themselves as religious, you know, could mean the same thing as spiritual. But, 
I do think even those two roads, you know, meet, cross, and, you know, intertwine down the road a piece. But mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, you know, words, uh, because I'm a wordsmith, uh, you know, I sit and look at words for a long time, and the, each word carries a lot of emotional baggage, a lot of history, and, you know, there are people who may shy away from the use of the word religion because they had either limiting experiences or... Um, you know, it set them apart in a different way, where spiritual seems, you know, more more embracing. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. interesting differences I've found between Buddhist practice and the Judeo-Christian traditions in which I grew up as well is that it seemed like um, some of these uh, the, the Western religions are exclusive. And the, and the Buddhism seemed to be inclusive. Uh, I remember interviewing some uh, nuns who had just come back from a long retreat, and they were meeting the Dalai Lama. They were on a retreat in India. And, and what they were saying was the practice of this simple meditation brought them back to their own you know, spiritual practices and belief systems with more focus and more compassion. And I thought, wow, that's great. This is really the, the cross-pollination of East and West and, and the best of, you know, the best of all the worlds. And if there's a practice that can send you back to your own uh, spiritual and religious roots, I'm, I'll vote for that one and, oh. and, 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 and include it, you know, in, in the kind of package of your spiritual tool chest, if, if you will. Absolutely. You know, one of the expressions that, that you have on your website is endlessly curious. How does that fit with Buddhism, Perry? Well, uh, that fits it because um, the Buddha had said, you know, and some of his sayings are, you know, encapsulated, you know, in so many contexts, but he said, he suggested that we all maintain a, quote, sufficiently inquiring mind, end quote. Never to accept somebody else's, you know, word or, you know, vision or view of how the world is. He said, base your opinion on your own personal experience. So I think that endlessly curious was something innate in me, and it's why I became a very good journalist and, and, a, and a, you know, good, good, uh, good Buddhist, if you will, because I, I was, <laughs> I, have, I have that inquiring mind that, that, Right. I want to know why, why and how, and uh, you know, I'm not the—I wasn't the kid who took the clock apart, but I was the kid who kind of deconstructed what was happening socially, psychologically. You know, what makes her tick? Why? What motivates her? Uh, so, so that's a, a part of the beautiful, answer. Perry. Will you, we've got just a few minutes left, will you remind listeners of your website and your book and how they can get in touch with you or if you have anything coming up that they should know I've about? I've just got about one minute yeah. left. Okay, I'd be glad to. My website is perrygarfinkel.com. Uh, if you Google my name, Perry Garfinkel, you get you know millions of ways to find me. My email, and I'd be glad to hear from your listeners, my email is encrypted in my website on even the home page, you know, because of the way hacking is, you know, put the actual email in there. But if you, get, if you go to the home page, you'll see how to find my email. And um, 
you know, uh, my book still sells, and I, you know, would love people to read it. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Buddha or Bust, and the subtitle is In Search of Truth, Meaning, Happiness, and the Man Who Found Them All. In the next couple of months, maybe I'll let you know because I'm going to be starting to teach some writing workshops, which I, I did one in August in Costa Rica, and I have a story Fantastic. coming out. In a, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I have, I have a couple of um, a piece coming out in the New York Times in a couple of weeks for a new column I'm going to be writing for called Draft, which is about the craft of writing. Okay, so Perry, I'll... we're going to have to have you back on again, I can tell. You've oh, yes. got so much to, to offer. And thank you for being a fabulous guest. And, Sandy, our hour is already coming to a close. Perry, thank you so much. And You're to our listening... very welcome. Uh, Lovely to be with you. Thank you. And to our listening audience, we invite you to visit our website at passionbydesign.com, where you can get more information about living your life with passion, purpose, and possibility. Hi, this is Peter Casey, your new and pre-owned automobile consultant at Butts Cadillac Chevrolet in the Seaside Auto Center. No matter how far out of town you go, you won't find better prices or service. Family-owned Butts Cadillac Chevrolet has been selling great vehicles to Central Coast residents and beyond for over a century. From the brand new Volt Car of the Year to the latest luxury SUV from Cadillac, you will be treated like family. We have a relaxed atmosphere with no high-pressure sales tactics. Our goal is to work for you in finding just the right vehicle that fits your wants and needs. So experience the butts difference with me, your friend in the car business, Peter Casey. Visit us in the Seaside Auto Center. Call me anytime at 831-521-3961. That's 831-521-3961. Don't forget to mention you heard this ad on KRXA. Call me, Peter Casey, at 521-3961.